Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. This episode of From Page to Practice is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special where I am joined by college members, fellows and chartered teachers to discuss the contents of the latest issue. If you enjoy the discussion and want to get a hold of your own copy of Impact, visit chartered.college and join as a member. Hi and welcome to Series 3, Episode 10 of From Page to Practice. This is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special, the first in a year actually. Today we have a selection of article authors and readers ready to share and reflect upon how research can be applied to teaching practice. In fact, this episode covers eight of the articles from the print version of the journal and a couple more from the online one. There are about nine authors and five readers and only a small overlap in the articles which are discussed, so we've got a great variety. Let's get started with Jonathan Firth. Hello, my name is Jonathan Firth and I'm a teaching fellow at the School of Education at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Uh, There's three main parts to my role. I work with student teachers, I work with education students, undergraduates and postgraduates, and I also do research into memory and metacognition. Um, My background before that was a psychology teacher, and I was also involved in personal education, including study skills. One thing that has um, become apparent to me as I've worked um, with supporting young people with study skills is that this is often not done especially well in schools, and it's often done quite late. Um, And really the reason for writing my article for Impact was to suggest what I think would be a better way. Uh, a way of developing study skills that would have some of the roots of understanding the human mind, understanding memory that we develop when teaching psychology, and would provide more of a foundation so that when uh, young people come to study for their exams, then instead of being told a a list of tips of how to study, this is how to study effectively, this is evidence-based, they would actually really understand how memory works, so they would understand why these things might be effective and other things might be ineffective. So. Um, To kind of uh, summarise the main points of the article, um, I firstly go through um, a few arguments about why it is that we often don't understand our own memory. Uh, As a researcher into memory, um, it's something that is has has always fascinated me and kind of grabbed my attention that really more than any other area of psychology I can think of, um, memory is an area that we often don't understand even though we use it every day as you know as everyday people and and students and teachers alike um, it's not obvious how our memories work and there's a lot of misconceptions about this even from well-educated people so uh, for example if you ask somebody will they remember something in a few days time often they think that they will and they underestimate forgetting um, they often underestimate the need to practice something further And they may well, uh, kind of related to memory, they may well um, overestimate their own competence in a particular uh, skill or or, or field of knowledge. So there's a lot of flawed beliefs about memory, and I kind of go into this and talk about this in terms of an idea of psychological literacy. Psychological literacy basically means more broadly how well do we understand our own mind and our own behaviour. 
So as I as I discuss in the article, it's a bit like digital literacy. You know, it's a it's a kind of a skill for um, dealing with everyday life. We need to understand how computers work, but we also need to understand how the mind works. We also need to understand how other people work. If you are successful in a job interview, it's partly because of your psychological literacy. You know how to speak to people in a way that's not going to make you look um, you know, weird or rude or anything like that. Um, our psychological literacy extends to how we learn a new skill. So if I want to start a new skill or perhaps uh, undertake a new course of study, then I'm making a lot of decisions about what to do and when to do it. And that's what our young people have to do as they do their GCSEs, A-level hires, etc. They have to kind of make decisions about when to study, how to study, um, when to stop studying a particular topic and switch to another one. And these are all areas that have been studied extensively by cognitive psychologists. So as I said, I think that what often happens, and I, I see this when I, I, I visit schools and when I look at things like school websites and their tips for how to study for exams, what often happens is that young people are given booklets, this is how to revise for your exams, or they're given talks, uh, sometimes parents are given talks, this is how your young person needs to study for an exam. And it's often kind of a list of tips without really any explanation of why these things might be beneficial. Um, I, I'm quite an advocate for things like the spacing effect and retrieval practice. I've talked about those and written about those for impact before. Um, but I think the idea that we can just kind of say to people, okay, this is an evidence-based study practice, just do this. Um, it perhaps overestimates the ability of young people to take in a, a tip or a suggestion and put it into practice effectively. And they're not necessarily going to know when they're getting it wrong because they don't have that fundamental understanding of how memory works. And as I've already said, we, we can't assume that their kind of common sense understanding of memory is going to be accurate. Generally, it won't. So um, what that leads me to, to, to think about is that just as we do um, when teaching uh, psychology at things like GCSE level, um, or even younger, because in fact, you know, I live in Scotland and quite often psychology is taught right the way through secondary school from the, from first year. Um, that understanding of how the mind works, of how psychological processes work, can provide quite a good foundation. If you have studied things like memory, attention, um, the brain, etc., as topics in psychology for the first two, three years of school, and then people start saying to you, well, it would be more useful to engage in retrieval practice, or, or you may forget something um, after studying it for you know a, a, an evening, then maybe by the time your exam comes around, you'll have forgotten some of it. Well, that starts to make sense because they've studied theories of memory. Um, they understand about the forgetting curve. They understand about um, how uh, learning needs to be active or whatever. So I guess what I'm saying is that rather than kind of going directly and telling people, this is what you need to about know about what to study, we need to build a kind of theoretical understanding of how the mind works. And in a way, as an analogy that I make in the article, this is actually quite similar to what we do in other subjects. You wouldn't expect um, a student of physics or politics to just kind of memorise the answers. You would want to build an understanding of what processes are going on and what, what makes this the right answer. And really, I'm suggesting that the same approach uh, needs to be taken to how to study as well. So rather than waiting until later years, wait until they've got their high stakes exams before um, trying to teach people kind of rapidly and in, in brief sessions how to study um, or via booklets or whatever, 
I think it would be valuable to develop that as one of their competences, part of their psychological literacy, right the way through secondary school and possibly before, because primary school pupils also need to know how to study independently. Clearly, the level of independence increases as they get older, but there's still some independent study in, in the primary years. And the more we build these deep roots, so that it's not just a kind of a shallow veneer of understanding, but really a kind of rooted understanding of how to study, um, the better, I think. The more that it will last and the more that it will be um, resilient and able to deal with challenges and able to self-correct so that when the young person is finding something's not quite working for them, they can make sensible decisions about why this is the case and what to do instead. And so that when they move on from school and go to university or college or um, workplace training or any other situation where they may need to study and, and, and to learn new things, they can that, that deep-rooted understanding of how the mind works and how memory works will be much more lasting and they will be able to apply that um, in other areas of their life further down the line. So that was the kind of origin and uh, thinking behind my article. Um, I hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. I'd certainly be interested to hear from people who, um, and in fact, a few a few readers have got in touch with me and said that they perhaps have been thinking along similar lines in their schools. If you've got, in your um, place of work, you've either um, already begun to or are thinking of introducing kind of a psychology-based understanding of memory as a as an earlier offering in the school and using that as a foundation for more effective learning and study. Um, and that could extend to things like motivations uh, as well, you know, other aspects of, of the human mind that are relevant to studying effectively. And um, then I'd be really interested to hear about that, I'd really be interested to uh, connect with other educators and, and kind of keep the conversation going. So thanks for listening. Bye for now. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Charter College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust among the educational community and share your voice to shape your profession. Join the conversation using the hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next up, we're going to hear from article author Fabio. Hello, my name is Fabio Di Salvo. I'm a physics teacher, currently teaching at an international school here in Singapore. And one of my main interests um, is being given a syllabus and coming up with a sequence that works for me, my department and my students. And I've been in my current school for a year and a half. And last year we moved over to a new syllabus, uh, the IGCSE Edexcel. And so this gave us an opportunity as a department to work together on a sequence from scratch. Previously, for me, it was all about creating the best story that we can tell our students and, um, and how physics can, can gradually build up in knowledge. But over the past few months, I've read more and taken more of an interest in uh, cognitive load theory. And now it's not just about the story that I'm trying to tell, but also is does the story take into account the intrinsic load that we're placing on our students? Is the content building up gradually, are explicit links being made? Um, not only that, but in, in physics, a big thing to be aware of is the mathematical skills as well. And is this being gradually built through time? So in our department, we, we started looking at uh, creating this new 
sequence from scratch, um, and then implementing it over a series of lessons, uh, reflecting on how that went, and then modifying it for, for the next year. And over the past year, this is, this is going really well. Um, a sequence that we've come up with, we've made tweaks here and there, and we've thought, actually, this was a little bit too difficult for our students at this point. Maybe next year we should leave it until a little bit later. Um, but for us, it, it's all about making those, those links to prior learning explicit. So if you were to map out physics, um, you know, on a big sheet of paper, you'd see connections absolutely everywhere. Everything is linked. And it's about how best to build up this map so that our students aren't overwhelmed, but that they are able to form those connections in their minds. But like I said, this is only part of the challenge. There is also this mathematical element that the students need to be able to deal with. Uh, one of the books that was inspiration for me for this article, uh, for the Impact Journal, was Oliver Lovell's book, uh, Sweller's Cognitive Load Theory in Action. He talks about this skills hierarchy, which I was very interested in. Um, so if you look at any GCSE or IGCSE syllabus for physics, you'll see some pretty complex mathematics quite early on, mostly in the mechanics section. So it's important to have an awareness of this um, uh, and when this part of the syllabus should be taught. In my schools, in the schools that I've worked at, discussions with the science and, and math departments have been absolutely key. So for example, in my new school, um, I, I've come to understand that they don't teach a certain skill until year 11, which for us is needed for a um, refractive index. And it's it's something that might fall naturally in year 10 in physics, but actually in my current school, it's better suited in year 11 because that's when they have the, the mathematical skills that they need. So building this sequence is, is not just about when you think the best part in terms of content would be, but also in terms of mathematical skill. And this is contextual for different schools and different departments. Now, we also space the content so that prior learning is revisited regularly and built upon gradually. So, for example, if I take mechanics again, we don't do the entire mechanics unit in one go, but instead we split it up into two or three sections across the two-year IGCSE or even the IBDP course. So I mentioned in the article that, uh, as a department, we're happy to take different routes through the sequence. Um, but as long as we've agreed set points where we must have completed the same content by a certain time, then that ensures consistency with assessments and uh, if, any, if any student needs to change class, for example. So as long as we have this intrinsic load that we're placing on our students at the forefront of our mind, it means that when we come together as a department and reflect, it means any modifications we do make will be for the, for the benefit of our students. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and be equipped with the knowledge of the latest research in pedagogy, be empowered to decide what works, feel valued and trusted by the school community as an expert, and contribute to shaping the future of your profession. Join the conversation using the hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Our next contribution today comes from article authors Amy and Jacqueline. 
Hi, my name's Amy Tinkler and I'm one of the co-authors of an article in this term's edition of Impact called Small Schools with Big Ideas, a Connected Curriculum Model. I'm currently head of school at Carsington and Hopton Primary School, which is part of a four-school federation. They're all small schools um, and I also lead the curriculum across all of our schools. So we wanted to write this article in response to some of the worries that small school leaders are having currently around the curriculum, and particularly in response to the current Ofsted framework, which focuses heavily on the curriculum. And whilst we don't do anything particularly for Ofsted, and we want our curriculum to be brilliant for our children, what we do know is that we do need to pass our Ofsted inspections at the end of the day. And in a small school, an Ofsted grading can make the difference between families choosing to send their children to your school or not. And one or two children in a small school can make a massive difference to your budget. So we wanted to write this article to share the work that we're doing across our federation on the curriculum, which is carefully designed to help our children develop the knowledge they need whilst they are at our schools, but very specifically within our context of small schools. We think this, is, this curriculum is brilliant and it works for us because we are small, not in spite of the facts that we are small and we don't make any apologies for that. So the article talks about the analogy of a curriculum as a Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's a well-known analogy of the curriculum as a box set from Neil Armand, and it's been talked about for quite a few years, but that just doesn't work for us because in our classes we have one, two, three, or sometimes even four year groups. And so we need to think very carefully about how we're going to design what we do every day to make sure all those children are getting as good a deal, if not better, than children in single age classes. So the idea behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that you could watch any one of the Marvel films on their own and enjoy it and learn about the characters, the character that was in the film and the storyline that that film had within it. But you would learn so much more if you understood all of the other Marvel films and the wider Marvel storyline. If you were embedded in the story and invested in the characters and the storyline, you would learn more and you would probably remember more about each film as you watched them. You'd make more links between what you were hearing and seeing. So what does that have to do with our curriculum? Well, in our classrooms, each unit of work that the subject leaders and the teachers have planned is like its own individual Marvel film. But the key thing is that each unit stands alone well. It delivers good knowledge, it's tightly focused and planned, and in that way the children are able to experience the unit on its own as it is. Because we'll have some children experiencing, say, for example, a mountains unit in year three, whilst their classmates who are in the same classroom with the same teacher are experiencing it as a year six. So our units need to be really powerful on their own. But the real power comes as the children learn more units over time. Like watching a whole selection of the Marvel films, the pupils can pull together the whole story, see the links and the themes and relate them to one another. Now, we can't leave this kind of relating things to one another uh, to chance because it's really important for our children. And this is where our teachers really are the superheroes. They have the same children in their classes for up to four years and they know everything they have taught and covered and everything that they are going to teach. And so this put them in a unique position to point out the links within and between the subjects. And it's these links that make the learning really powerful for the children in our classrooms. And it's why, although we know all teachers are the most important resource in the classroom, the teachers in small school classrooms are really incredibly important and are actually the real superheroes. So that's the theory behind our article, but I'm going to hand over to Jackie, who co-authored the article, who will share a bit more about how this feels in practice. Hello. Thanks, Amy. So my name is Jacqueline Bone, and I'm an infant teacher in the same federation as Amy, 
and the co-author of Small Schools with Big Ideas. It has been really exciting to be involved with building our very own bespoke curriculum for the children of our schools. As a team, we've worked closely together and carefully defined um, what we want our children to know by the time they leave us in year six across all the foundation subjects. I lead PSHE and RSE across the Federation and have been integral in planning what that looks like from reception to year six. And because our classes are mixed age, and as an infant teacher, I get to teach these children for three years, I know what they know um, because I taught it to them. Also, I know what my year ones will need to know, what building blocks they will need going into year two. I'm able to guide the children through the connections because I know how they fit together. Our curriculum is constructed in such a way that links can be made vertically throughout each subject, but also across the other subjects. So, for example, this year in PSHE, we've been examining how to keep our bodies healthy, how physical and mental health are linked, and this builds on knowledge that my class learnt in science last year when they learnt about healthy eating and exercise. I know how these links continue as they travel up the school and as the children go into the juniors. By the end of year six, the children leave our schools with a deep interconnected knowledge of the content of our curriculum. And as it says in our article, this is made possible because of the structure of our classes and not in spite of it. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chancellor College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. Join the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. The next author we're going to hear from is Polly. Hello, and thank you so much for having me on the Page to Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Polly Crowther, teacher, um, co-founder of Early Insights and Evidence Lead in Education at the East London Research School. I co-authored the article in Impact um, Issue 14, How Are Schools Adopting Pedagogies of Play in Key Stage 1? We decided to write this article because we were in roles working across schools, um, across countries, across early year settings, where teachers, leaders and practitioners were considering how to support transition for children entering Key Stage 1 after not having completed the normal year of reception that anyone would have um, imagined it being when those children started in September 2019. The context was one where the accountability structures that teachers and early years leaders are used to were very different. We were not expecting people to report on their early learning goals. We knew that SATS results um, were not going to be shared. So there there was an opportunity potentially for people to think beyond the accountability structures and really focus on what was right in their specific context for their children. And of course, children across the country were impacted in different ways by the pandemic and by the lockdowns. And the three of us were working predominantly in schools and settings where the majority of children came from low-income backgrounds. And there were particular concerns for the groups of children that we were working with, with regards to social and emotional and mental health, um, physical development and communication and language. 
So we were really interested to find out what schools were doing with regards to transition and with regards to playing Key Stage 1. We did some initial research into the evidence for what age pedagogies of play are considered to be beneficial and whether there's a point at which the transition from predominantly pedagogies of play to direct instruction is supported by the evidence. We found that there isn't really, perhaps not surprisingly, there isn't really a key point at which the broad consensus that pedagogies of play are most effective for young children becomes um, the consensus that direct instruction is particularly beneficial for um, learning. So um, we did find, however, some evidence in the research for um, communities or systems or schools that had employed play in new ways and what the barriers and opportunities were that they had faced or of what systems and schools used play in different phases of education. That helped us a little bit, but didn't really give us any concrete answers. We conducted some surveys and some structured interviews with teachers, school leaders, early years practitioners who were um, preparing for Key Stage 1, preparing their children for Key Stage 1. Almost half of the respondents to our survey were introducing play for the first time, and most of the rest of the respondents were increasing pedagogies of play. There were, interestingly, a couple of respondents who were reducing their pedagogies of play in Key Stage 1, specifically for those respondents to do with resourcing requirements and the particular challenges of delivering play-based learning in the context of um keeping everything kind of COVID safe and the resource requirements that were put in place in lots of settings in in that situation. Um, What we found was that for the most part, the motivation for increasing or introducing pedagogies of play in Key Stage 1 came from either children's well-being, effectively, for social, emotional, mental health reasons, or for reasons connected with curriculum and progress. So for many children, the needs around communication and language, physical development, which is felt not to have been sufficiently supported in their reception year, and because of being unable to access their settings, that that was something that would be needed um, in key stage one, and that play was the most effective pedagogy for that. We also found that most of the schools that we spoke to, most of the teachers that we spoke to, faced barriers when implementing play in key stage one. One really huge one, which I think is relevant for early years teachers um, and practitioners across the board, is this kind of tension between play and learning and how it is conceptualised across the education system and how it can be really difficult as an early years practitioner to talk to someone whose experience is predominantly in key stage two about play as learning. And that that meant that senior leadership team really needed to be brought on board. And if they weren't, then um, implementing play in Key Stage 1 was really challenging. There were also some particularly significant questions about resource. Pedagogies of play require particular learning environments, they require particular resources, and they require particular adults, people who are experts in interactions with young children and in supporting pedagogies of play to be effective. And there are lots of ways in which a lack of resource can mean that even with the best will in the world, pedagogies of play can be ineffective. Um, And there was also uh, an observation by a number of the people who responded to our survey and the people that we interviewed around children who struggle to play and the importance of the early years foundation stage curriculum for not just teaching through play, but teaching to play. 
And the, the children, sometimes children who came in already facing barriers to learning, um, perhaps because of additional needs that they had or perhaps because of experiences that they had at home that meant that they needed that scaffolding and support to understand how to access a play-based curriculum or a play-based environment and that for those children moving on to key stage one without any experience of play would effectively leave a really big gap in their skill set. So our findings overall were that there was no consensus which is probably unsurprising and of course always frustrating but that more research would be really beneficial into understanding and exploring this tension between play and learning, play and direct instruction and at what ages different types of play are beneficial for children's learning and their social emotional um, well-being. I think it really clearly came out of our research that play has a particular value for social, emotional, mental health, um, also for communication and language and the, the opportunities for children to speak and develop their speech and their listening was really fundamental in play that, that is something that, of course, many children really struggle with when they enter school and that I think there's, there's now emerging evidence from different studies that are showing that communication language is really one of the key areas, in particular where children from low-income backgrounds have really um, struggled during the lockdowns and the pandemic and there's particular support that really needs to be put in place for those children. We also found that schools really need to openly consider the barriers to effectively implementing play in Key Stage 1 because you can't just uh, hope that they're going to go away or hope that you're going to overcome them. Schools need to have really open conversations about all of those things, about resources, um, about the tensions in the pedagogies, um, about what senior leaders believe about play and learning because if everybody is talking from the same page, if everybody has the same language about it, at least in order to have open disagreements, then it's possible to move forward with that end goal in mind. And as I said, that was very often in these schools, progress against the curriculum or the personal social emotional development, social emotional mental health needs of the children. I hope that for school leaders, teachers, early years practitioners, key stage one um, teachers out there, this article is a helpful starting point for making play meaningful in Key Stage 1. There are a lot of schools that endeavour to put play into the Key Stage 1 curriculum, some with great success and some facing many barriers to making it really effective. Um, and this is about not just having a kind of a golden time at the end of the day, for example, but about when, it, when play is a powerful pedagogy for supporting children in Key Stage 1 to make progress against the Key Stage 1 curriculum, but also potentially to make progress against the early years curriculum if they haven't completed that and to develop some of those foundational skills in communication and language and well-being and play that really all children need not just to be successful in school but to have a joyful childhood. There is the, the article doesn't provide answers, but hopefully it draws on real experiences that show how critical the context is and how the conversations that you have within your setting can really powerfully drive you forward to making play a meaningful pedagogy wherever you implement it. Thank you so much for reading the article. Thank you for having taking the time to listen to me talking about the article. I just hope that it can be helpful for some settings in having conversations about what they do moving forward. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, 
and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Join the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. The next author we're hearing from is Alex. Hello, my name is Alex Beecham. I'm the assistant head teacher and lead practitioner at Hunter's Bar Junior School in Sheffield. I'm also a CPD expert advisor for the Teacher Development Trust. My Twitter handle is at Al underscore Beecham. That's B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. And thank you very much for inviting me to talk about my article in the recent Impact Journal. The piece I wrote is called Living and Learning Inside the Story. How Storytelling Can Shape Curriculum Design. I wrote this as a way to bring together current thinking and practice from the fields of psychology and cognitive science for designing a theme in a primary school, leveraging the power of story structures as a way to not only deliver the curriculum, but also for students to experience it. In the article, I proposed that by adopting story structures and applying principles of narrative when planning and sequencing a unit, students can forge a meaningful and long-lasting relationship with specified powerful knowledge build genuine empathy linked to the content and produce outcomes that can make a difference to their communities. The article I wrote is broken down into three sections and I'll just take you through those briefly. So in section one, I consider the cognitive advantages of stories. And here I bring together threads from Daniel Willingham, Shankin Abelson and Andy Tharby. And I look briefly at how stories and their structures can unlock the mind's ability to store easily retrievable knowledge. I go on to suggest that such structures can be used not only to bring learning to life within lessons, but they can also be used as a strategic tool to map out memorable sequences of learning across the arc of a unit. In the second section, I consider Andrew Reagan's six shapes of narrative and how teachers can use these shapes and plot points when planning and implementing a theme unit to help students to experience the ups, downs, twists and turns within a sequence of learning. For example, the Cinderella shape, the fall to rise to fall. This could be used to map out the emotions you want the students to experience over the length of the unit. In our school, for example, this particular shape helped people to understand the plight, hope and tragedy for some refugees fleeing their war-torn homes and settling in communities. In the final section, the heart of the article, There is a case study from my school, Hunters Bar Junior School in Sheffield, focusing on how Peter Bainbridge, the Year 5 theme planner, leveraged narrative structures to design a topic on the aforementioned international refugee crisis. We created a handy model that we hope other schools might be able to use to map out a theme unit in a primary school or indeed a subject unit in secondary schools. The model is a visual timeline with five chapters or plot points to help curriculum designers, class teachers, to map out a unit hitting the key aspects of narrative storytelling. Let me just take you briefly through the model. And we can think of each part of the model as a plot point or a chapter. So chapter one, we start by setting the scene and building curiosity from the onset to get the students hooked early on. Thus maybe through a visitor or a provocation or maybe a philosophy for children session, something to hook the learners. The second chapter, building the knowledge very, very carefully through direct instruction, generative learning and assessment for learning. Chapter three, engineering empathy through enrichment, working with charities, for example, and tethering pupils' knowledge to a real-life problem. Chapter four, using immersive writing 
to put the students centre stage in a narrative that embeds their acquired knowledge. And chapter five, a call to action. Here I explain how working with charities, for example, from our local communities, can create a genuine purpose and audience for the knowledge and understanding acquired by the students. Addressing a real problem that can benefit others helps not only to apply the learning, but also builds genuine empathy and cements semantic memory within an episodic shell. The final part of the model is the student's showcase, where pupils have the chance to use oracy, writing or the arts to express how their thinking and knowledge has changed since the start of the unit. It gives students a voice to show what they know and can be used by teachers to assess the depth of understanding. And I finish the article by looking at some of the challenges and barriers we face and how we assess the impact of the unit at our school. I really hope that schools might be able to use the model within the article to help shape their curriculum in the future. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can get me on Twitter at Al underscore Beecham. And thank you very much for listening. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And the next author we're going to hear from is Tom. Hi, I'm Tom Silkstone. You can find me on Twitter using the handle at Mr Silkstone. Um, I'm currently studying towards a master's in education with a focus on curriculum design and leadership. And the research that I'm conducting is exploring the visibility of race within initial teacher education. And I'm utilising pre-service teachers' experiences to examine whether they feel their initial teacher education has prepared them to combat racism in their early careers. I recently published an article in the online version of the Charter College of Teaching's latest impact journal, which is titled, The World Can Only Be As Equal As The Knowledge That It Is Built Upon Towards a Curriculum of Justice. Um, I believe that the move towards neo-traditional pedagogies, particularly those pedagogies which utilise cognitive science, cognitive load theory, for example, um, I think that they take away the humanness and the idea of multiplicity in the classroom and are very much reminiscent of what Paulo Freire would argue is the banking model of education in which we see students as empty vessels to be filled with certain kinds of knowledge and processes. The work of Paulo Freire has largely influenced my philosophy of education, seeing it as a practice of freedom in which we work as a community to defamiliarise and reconstruct um, notions of knowledge. And this is a thread that runs throughout my article. My article therefore starts with the assumption that education is a political process and so we must acknowledge this within curriculum design because the knowledge that we choose to include or exclude in the curriculum, in the curriculum content, um, that has consequences. And so we must be critical of this and we must consider what is the purpose of that content, of that knowledge and what is the purpose ultimately of the education that we are providing. Arguably, the curriculum reflects the, reflects the nation's values and ambitions. And in a neoliberal society, this intersects with economic prosperity. This means that certain pedagogies are promoted by the Department for Education and Ofsted, amongst other institutions and organisations, um, which aim to increase the development of um, and progress of skills for human capital. 
The increase in accountability at school level, which we can see through the Ofsted inspection framework and the publicisation of school performance data, further promote the economic purpose and value of education. And so we have accountability, which rationalises the marketization, autonomy and competition within a neoliberal curriculum, which ultimately value meritocracy. Um, this meritocracy then ignores the reality that certain um, investments, certain policies, certain practices um, are determined by whom policymakers consider the curriculum should serve. And in a neoliberal curriculum, this is based on preconceived ideas of their economic worth and the skills that are needed for economic development. Such notions then marginalise certain groups who deviate from these normative constructions, particularly students of colour and students in receipt of free school meals, as argued by the works of Joe Bowler, David Gilborn, um, Kawan Bapal, to name a few. I know that decolonisation is a topic schools are thinking about currently, and so I hope this article is useful in highlighting some of the existing thinking and theories in this area. Um, a distinction should be made between efforts to decolonise and efforts to do diversify representation. While representation in the curriculum may, um, may be a useful starting point to engage with more equitable practice, um, I believe that it doesn't address the issues effectively um, because we must also begin to examine the very pedagogies that we're using to deliver curriculum content and the values that have um, constructed the curriculum to begin with, ultimately we, miss, we must examine the positionality that we bring to educational spaces. Attempts to decolonise the curriculum must align with trauma-informed approaches because they will acknowledge the power and harm that teachers, schools and institutions have inflicted through the normative values that they may hold. Um, a commitment from curriculum leaders and teachers is needed to understand the implications of the values and positions that they hold and the inherited power behind that. And Paulo Freire's critical pedagogy um, disrupts this power and these normative ideas of knowledge as it assumes that students are also holders of knowledge and experience which is valuable in the classroom. Such pedagogy places an emphasis on dialogue in the classroom to allow space for students to direct their own learning um, and direct it away from preconscribed ideas and values um, set by the, the teacher. Um, and these are hopefully then going to develop relevant cultural capital to students' experiences and encourage them to develop new understandings based on the knowledge that has been constructed in that learning environment. This will then encourage students to develop new understandings um, and explore previously um, excluded narratives, which allow them to um, critically engage with the curriculum, critically engage with the content in the classroom, um, with their own experiences, their own realities, but also produce new ways of thinking and um, explore new ideas of knowledge. Um, I hope that this article will invite you to consider how cultural capital can be developed in a way which values the lived experiences that students bring to educational spaces. Um, as well as encouraging you to engage critically with the curriculum to begin to examine how certain positions have been um, considered over or above others and what might the consequences be of this. 
Um, thank you for listening. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust among the educational community and share your voice to shape your profession. Join the conversation using the hashtag PagePracticePodcast. We have three more authors from the online edition now and the next is Binja. Hi, my name is Bindia Chohan. I'm the Head of Drama at Kellett School, which is a British international school in Hong Kong. I'm also a Fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching and I've worked um, in a mix of London state schools and international schools over the last 15 years. You can find me or follow me on Twitter and my handle is Drama. Recently, I wrote an article for the Impact magazine and it was entitled The Drama Curriculum, Where Do We Go From Here? It features in issue 14 of the Impact magazine, which focuses on curriculum, pedagogy and learning. And the reason I wrote the article was two main things, really. Firstly, the arts tends to not be used as an example within schools when they're focusing on CPD. There's not a lot of evidence-based work around the arts as much. Um, And with the introduction of COVID over the last few years, I wanted to really talk about how COVID, technology and evidence-based work works within the arts sector. And so I had been doing a lot of reading. I was part of the research ed group at school where we were reading a collection of books and articles. I had gone off on my own during my maternity leave and was reading the work of Mary Myatt, Benny Cara, uh, Daisy Christodoulou and many more. And having looked at that and having to teach a online curriculum for drama for quite a number of years, and I'm currently actually still doing it now, I wanted to share my thought process and my journey as a head of drama in terms of where drama goes from here. The arts were hit particularly hard with COVID, with theatre not being able to be face-to-face, students not being able to connect person-to-person, and so we had to be very creative in the way that we made the arts blossom again and through the idea of mixed media streamed performances technology really pushing um, us into different directions I wrote an article with a focus of the journey that our school had the journey I had as a head of drama and the takeaways from having looked back at that process So what I wanted people to do when they read the article was try a few of the ideas out. Um, It is written with a drama and theatre focus in mind. However, a lot of the technical ideas, platforms, software that is available, you could implement it within any subject. Um, And I just wanted to discuss how we we could move the curriculum on in terms of a 21st century approach. 
And where will we go from here? Because for me, what I realised was that it was about a global perspective. It was about making connections more strongly to the futures that our students were going to have and making those connections more explicit and and educating our, our students into how this might work for them moving forward. And I really went beyond the idea that drama was just a acting subject, that it was much more than that, that there were designer, director, um, marketing, business. It's a business within itself as well as a creative subject. So I hope that if you go online and you read the article, that there's something for all educators to take away and try and I would really love to hear from anyone who tries a few of those ideas and see how it worked for your curriculum. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and be equipped with the knowledge of the latest research in pedagogy, be empowered to decide what works, feel valued and trusted by the school community as an expert and contribute to shaping the future of your profession. Join the conversation using the hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And next up, we are going to hear from David. Hi, I'm David Priest, and I'm excited to be talking to you about my impact article on curriculum paradigms and Thomas Kuhn's great work. So I read a blog by Joe Kirby about the scientific revolution in education and the cognitive science paradigm. And it got me thinking about a great perspective that I'd studied at university on a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution by a physicist called Thomas Kuhn. It's a great book. And what it does is it explores how science is done and the way that it operates to form and get general agreement around big ideas, what Kuhn called paradigms. I wanted to write an article where I could discuss and describe these ideas and ask people to think about how they apply to the world of education and what we see. Thomas Kuhn was a physicist who was asked to teach a course on science for humanities students at Harvard. So he went back to some of the greats, Aristotle, Newton, and discovered that a lot of what they'd written about was completely different to what he'd expected. He argued science is like that. There's a normal period where science kind of works to confirm and test and solve puzzles based on what we think happens in the world based on our current understanding of it. It's usually based on someone's big idea, Newton's Principia or Aristotle or Franklin or Einstein. You can probably name a big thinker in your own subject. He called this a paradigm, a dominant theoretical framework. And we see that in, the, in education at the moment, right? Cognitive science, as well as cognitive load theory, a lot of research that says, yep, we agree that this works. Ofsted reports, EEF reviews make it best practice. We all speak the same language. We all see the same training and we all try and take the same best bets. Kuhn's argument, based on the history of physics, is that this situation lasts for a while, but eventually you start to find bits where it doesn't work cracks appear, tensions between different perspectives. And in science, the community of practitioners starts to question the paradigm. Kuhn calls this a disciplinary crisis. And he says, to solve it, either we need a whole new model of thinking, what he calls a paradigm shift, and a new framework of ideas that's better. Newton's theories replaced Aristotle's, Einstein's relativity replaces Newton's general theories. 
and then normal science just carries on. We go back to kind of just tinkering with what we know. And this has been suggested as true for science. Um, and we, we see elements of that in education at the moment. Certainly conversations, if you're on Twitter, look a bit like that. But the alternative is to recognise that there isn't one truth. Kirby himself says that we've got values to reconcile and that this throws up another framework. Another author, C.P. Snow, described this as two cultures. We've got completely different values, completely different perspectives, and we can't agree on a framework that we're viewing the same world through. He described scientists who knew nothing of literature and art and humanity specialists who were ignorant of basic science. Maybe this is more like the world we occupy in education. People who think that there's one way and others coming from a completely different perspective. The arguments aren't a disciplinary crisis leading to a paradigm shift. They're just reinforcing different values and perspectives from either side of a chasm. So I wrote the impact article. I hope it gives people a chance to go and read Thomas Kuhn. I hope it gives people a chance to think about what it might mean for their views on education um, and see how it gives us insight into education research, into education itself as a fundamentally human activity. Might help us, I'm hoping, to understand communities of practice and maybe give us a, a head start on thinking about what school of thought we identify with. What I'm hoping is that it leads us to a point where we can start to have better conversations, not just about paradigms and science and, and these abstractions and, and relative truths, but about values and how they shape our perspectives. So I hope you enjoy and I hope you and your listeners will get something out of it. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready-to-go staff training sessions. Join the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And lastly, when it comes to authors, and before we start hearing from readers of these articles, we have Jess and Gillian. Hi, Page to Podcast. Um, I'm Jess Gosling. And I'm Gillian Smith. And we wrote the article, A Reflection on the Value of Collaborating with Colleagues on Pedagogical Approaches for Supporting English Language Development in a Mandarin Context. So we wanted to say, why did we create this article? It all really came from, I noticed there was a need in my classroom for children to do a little bit more work in English. They came in a little bit low and I was a bit concerned compared to the year previous. I had a few silent children. So I started to talk to my team leader about some strategies to support these children. And then we took that higher and I, I went to talk to Miss um, Gillian Smith about what we could do to really support the children across our four classrooms. So we decided that we would get all our ideas down through an action research project. And after we did that, um, we, I brought, well, we, we developed the ideas together and then Miss Smith put them into different categories. Yeah, we definitely wanted to support all the teachers within our school, but by sharing the article, support teachers um, on a wider scale. And thinking about the three themes, belonging, 
um, connection between languages and repetition meant that we were really able to to focus the ideas and the strategies and really move forward within our school, but hopefully um, start a conversation for other teachers um, that might read the article. The idea was that these strategies could hopefully be used in other international schools and um, similar situations to our own. And should you ever want to develop a conversation about this, we did find more strategies than what are in the article, but if you should ever want to contact us, um, I'm on Jess Gosling too on Twitter, and we can continue the conversation. But we do hope it has helped people this article and... Um, if you are anyway inclined to do action research, I would highly recommend it because it did produce a lot of information for us, which we have now actioned in the following year in our current classes. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Join the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. We'll move on to our readers now and starting with Celeste. Hello, my name is Celeste. I'm at MFLCE on Twitter. And today I would like to react to the article in Impact that is called Developing an Inclusive Curriculum. What can we learn from teachers' inclusive pedagogy? I should also precise that I am a recently qualified teacher. I'm in my second year of teaching and I work in a school in Buckinghamshire. Um, This year I've started to participate in my school's DEI group, so diversity, equity and inclusion. And in this group, with a few other members of staff, we discuss how we could make our school more diverse, Um, and more inclusive um, on a rather informal basis we meet uh, and we discuss that so it's really an area um, um, a topic that I'm really interested about and that's why I chose this article to discuss today I was really struck by this article because I feel like nowadays in schools um, everyone is putting a lot of stress on being inclusive diversity and equity. Um, I know in my school we are doing some things to try to achieve more of that. Um, But I think that sometimes we kind of lose our focus on what really matters. And I found that this article really brings you back to what is really important about being inclusive in your curriculum. What I really liked about this article is that the researcher takes the perspective of the teachers and what teachers do in their classroom um, to be inclusive. And I think that that's what really matters is what do people do in their daily practice to make sure that all the pupils in the class are engaged and that they can all achieve their full potential. In the article, um, it really highlights that there are really simple things we can do to try to be more inclusive in our teaching, for example, making sure that children can work in different groups to work at their own pace, that they can work with the teachers, um, but that they can also learn from each other and that it is really central to make sure that we 
think about the needs of all the students we teach and how we can cater for these needs to make sure that we are inclusive by taking them all to the same objective. And I think that we all do some, some of that in our classroom and that it would be more interesting for um, people thinking about changing the curriculum to think about what the teachers are already doing in their schools and then maybe sharing good practice instead of just telling people what to do, trying to use what people are already doing would be probably a good thing. Something we do in my school, and that works really well, is that um, once a half term, we have a week where people can kind of have an open door policy. So you could sign up and then you're paired up with someone else, another teacher or even a member of the support staff, And you go around some classrooms during one teaching period. Um, you go around the school and you can go and observe some lessons. And then at the end of your session of observing one or different lessons, um, you answer a little questionnaire about what you've seen that kind of inspired you, what you found was good practice. So it's all about being positive and spotting what teachers are doing well. Um, your feedback is anonymous and then it's kind of collated together um, and then the, the feedback is shared to all the subject leaders by subjects um, and it's really interesting during subject meetings with the staff to discuss that and, and highlight the things that have been spotted by other members of staff. And it's a good way to promote how people can be more inclusive. What do they do? really easily in their teaching practice. Not something very sensational, but something that everyone could do. Um, little ideas like this to be more inclusive and take all our students um, where we want them to achieve. So, yeah, I think this article is really good in terms of that it is showing you that you don't have to go through intense periods of CPD during inset or long after-school meetings to discuss inclusion if you start by what you already have. And I think it's so important today in terms of workload and also teachers' retention and all of this thing that we kind of go back to what really matters and some simple things that everyone could do um, to improve their practice. So I found this really inspiring and I think the references at the end really gives you a lot more to think about. So, yeah, I would encourage you to, to read that and to also go and observe some teachers in your school, but rather informally and focusing on the positives, what good things do they do? Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Our next readers for today are Dave and Rhiannon. Hi, I'm Dave Tushingham and I'm a lead practitioner in a school in Bristol. Hello, my name's Rhiannon Rainbow and I'm school improvement lead maths for the Greenshaw Learning Trust. And we've been reading today an article, Cognitive Science in Curriculum Planning um, by Douglas Fairfield and Jenny Griffiths uh, from Teach First UK for um, the Impact Journal. Um, and there's been um, an incredible amount that we've taken from this. And myself, uh, particularly as an early careers um, mentor, um, some of the ideas and thoughts that I've taken from it, um, from the fundamental way of thinking that um, with cognitive theory, 
as teachers, we think very much about our students in this aspect. That's it for uh, myself and, and for the people that I mentor um, and other teachers um, in the profession. And, um, and just thinking about how, how the brain works, holding on to um, a, a certain amount of information um, before we hit cognitive load, um, I think really helps us to, to be able to support our early careers teachers better as they start um, their, their initial journey through teaching. Um, and one thing that we have in our trust is um, a, a developmental drop-ins, which I know um, many other trusts use um, as well. Um, and, and they're just incredibly powerful in terms of isolating the one small step um, that we could use to further um, our knowledge um, and our, our expertise and to move in that spectrum from novice to expert. Um, what we found particularly useful is um, Doug Lemos, as uh, referenced in the article, Doug Lemos, um, teach like a champion techniques um, in terms of uh, finding those isolated skills that we may wish to practice before moving on um, to our next action step. Um, but that's been incredibly powerful um, to be able to, to consider cognitive load um, for, for our staff and for our early careers teachers. And this article I just thought really summed it up beautifully. And I think that's, it's such an, a helpful way to frame it um, because you're absolutely right. We do so much regarding cognitive load for students. And then we're now talking about how we can help to when in our work with one another as well. And I remember the first time where I was having somebody come and do a DDI, a DDI of my lesson after I joined um, Five Acres just over four years ago um, when I joined the Greenshaw Learning Trust. And before then, I'd had a very different experience of lesson observations they were longer, they weren't very specific, I'd be asked to develop pace, or a bit of feedback I had once that it wasn't quite an outstanding lesson because it didn't make the person's hairs on the back of their neck stand up. So I, and, and you know, that's not going to be unusual or atypical um, necessarily. Things have changed, our understanding has changed. And, and with the DDI process, it being really specific, and actionable and something that I could understand and take away meant that it was so much more developmental, but it also wasn't too much for me to take on, even as what they say in, in the article about me being an expert teacher, as in I've taught for considerably longer than seven years. But even though you'd think that I have greater capacity be, capacity to be able to think about things, that specificity is really, really important. And it helped me even more. So I've, I've worked with a number of students um, with different paths before now. And a couple of years ago, I was extremely fortunate that I had two mentees at the same time, maths ones, on the Teach First program. And I'd never experienced it before. And I found that whole approach, like with I'd never come across Doug Lemov strategies very much so with Teach Like a Champion and, and, and the see it, name it, do it approach that he talked about in our um, book club session last year. And the fact that we could have this really precise shared understanding of exactly what it is they could do and a technique that they could try. So it, it just kept it really focused. And I suppose that's bringing the cognitive load aspect into our work with, with teachers at, at any level as well, because I found that really, really helpful for me is that that was considered for what I might find useful as a mentor is in breaking it down rather than a really intense day of training where you're doing loads and loads of different things all the time. And there's just too much to be able to take it all in. So no, it's, um, I, I think it's, 
it's so good that this article is being written to help frame it for how we're considering working with colleagues. So, so I, I agree completely with everything that, that you said there. And, and what's really helped me in terms of the framing um, around the way this has been written as well, it's just um, a little part where it says about um, understanding CRT helps us to design our ITT curriculum. Um, and just the word curriculum really sort of helped me to frame exactly what we're doing here. We work with the student, with our students with the curriculum and, and to, to think about it as a curriculum and to think about the, the same, um, basically the science of learning, how our brains work um, and, and how we learn, um, to think about um, the opportunities for deliberate practice outside of lesson time. And at the moment, we're looking at um, the idea of role play or, or after talking to, to Doug Lemoff, the idea of rehearsal sounds um, more like we're doing it for, for our actual um, lesson itself rather than trying to be somebody else I like the the phrase rehearsal but it's um but it's that that process of the deliberate practice anyway that that really helps um for the the main delivery of that lesson and uh, and, and the article describes that as maybe being the lead guitarist going to perform their new song for the first time in the middle of a live gig and and you, you think about the practice that goes in beforehand there um, well, well, we need to be practicing with our um, early career teachers we need to be practicing that as well um, with them and uh, and so so yeah, I think um, I think the article is right when it says about um, how it becomes uh, less suitable um, as teacher expertise in increases. But I certainly do feel that when I'm uh, reflecting at my more expert level, certainly not expert level in my view, but more expert level um, after teacher for twenty years, it's um, I'm still using those same principles that are discussed throughout this article and, and still making those same considerations. And I I know, like you say, it it does focus on um, ITT and it talks about how that changes the longer we're teaching but I think that's just because like with students the the further they progress through a, the curriculum in the subject or across the subjects that we're working on with them the more developed they are on that um, spectrum from novice to expert and so there are different things that we'd work on with them in different ways and that's just the same as we do with colleagues but if we're bringing something entirely new into it I think we need to consider then need to consider then um, the the cognitive load of that that aspect of it so if things have been done in a certain way for a period of time a change to that I think very small steps would be really important. And I know our discussions with um, Harry Fletcher Wood on his book, Habits of Success, and it's, it talks about um, supporting colleagues in change as well at the same time and, and how thinking of that, that sequence and, and considering which are the aspects you're going to focus on first rather than trying to do everything all at the same time because it brings in the um, cognitive science and he was talking about bringing the behavioral science in with it as well. And, and I think that's all really helpful. I totally agree. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just been an absolutely um, wonderful article to write um, to read. It's been really insightful and, um, and uh, I know that, that we, we sit and we reflect on, on these together um, in, in quite a selfish capacity where, where it just helps us with our own thoughts and, and our own practice and our own isolated and actionable steps. But um, we just hope that, that that has been useful for somebody somewhere. And, and just thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. Um, thank you so much for collating this and for also the piece in the Chartered College um, in the issue. It's just been it's been such a refreshing read. Thank you. Um, thank you ever so much. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College 
and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust among the educational community and share your voice to shape your profession. Join the conversation using the hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Just two more readers to go now, and the next one is Kaylee. My name is Kaylee Clark, and I am a first-year early career teacher. I completed my initial teacher training in 2021, having changed careers in response to the loss of my job at the beginning of the first UK lockdown. I now teach English to Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4 at a school in Cumbria. I'm going to offer a review of the article Cognitive Load Theory and the Design of ITT Curricula, written by Douglas Fairfield and Jenny Griffiths of Teach First UK. I am in the, the unusual position that I trained under the previous incarnation of initial teacher training, but I am now teaching under the updated early career framework and Teach First is my provider. The article from Teach First was therefore of interest to me and the opening paragraph was particularly resonant. One of the writers reflects on a lesson that they delivered right at the beginning of their teaching career in which they felt overwhelmed by the sheer number of different things that were happening simultaneously and as a consequence were unable to achieve what they had hoped for from their lesson plan. They then go on to explain the research-based reason for this, which is that they were experiencing cognitive overload. Whilst I cannot comment on Teach First's ITT curriculum, it having changed after I completed my training, the same principles extend into their early career framework. Within this, there is a six-week module dedicated to understanding cognition and metacognition and drawing on research of cognitive load theory, working memory versus long-term memory, and why teachers need to be aware of these principles so that they can avoid making the mistake of overloading their students with too many instructions at once, or asking too many questions, or not giving them enough thinking time after a question has been asked. Helpfully, this article applied the same principles from research to the training and development of new teachers. The writer's explicit discussion of the design of their ITT curriculum, and by extension, their early career framework, clearly explains the need to recognise the distinction between a novice teacher and an expert. A novice teacher is utilising their working memory whenever they step into a classroom, as each experience will include something that is completely new to them. They are not yet prepared for the complexity of the classroom because there are so many experiences that they have not yet had, and they do not have the prior knowledge to draw on for how to cope with different things that might arise. This is why new teachers and trainees so often admire the expert teacher who makes everything look so easy. They seem to be able to deliver content, deal with any behavioural issues, question effectively, successfully assess understanding, and make everything look like second nature. But this is because they are utilising their long-term memory, which is full of specific or at least contextually relevant experiences that they can draw on as required. And consequently, they can keep their working memory clear for the less predictable elements that may arise, such as a behavioural issue or an unexpected question from a student. They do not need to expend energy on routines and subject knowledge because such things have been embedded with practice and over time. Teaching is most certainly a profession into which you enter knowing a lot less than is ideal because there is just so much to learn. Although I already feel like I have improved so much since I started teaching in September 2021, I am intensely aware that there is still so much that I do not know 
And perhaps worse than that, there is a great deal that I am aware of not knowing or not being proficient at. And I have been left feeling frustrated by my training and the early career framework, not because the content is insufficient or I've lacked support, but because I feel like I want to be learning and progressing faster than I am. The writers go on to address this and recognise the need for trainees and new teachers to develop their expertise as rapidly as possible. To avoid the aforementioned cognitive overload, they suggest drawing on what has been termed the isolated elements effect, which is the breaking down of complex concepts and structures into individual elements and then learning these elements separately before a teacher attempts to integrate them into a single element or a whole lesson. Gradually, each technique of good practice will be transferred and secured into the teacher's long-term memory, thereby freeing up their working memory to focus on the next new concept, or indeed eventually to just simply be able to teach the lesson without it looking like um, it's been overly planned or contrived. Consequently, this article reassured me that taking the time to practice individual techniques, such as my use of questioning, establishing routines or modelling with students, is a process that should not and must not be rushed. A critique of this article that I would offer is that the different elements of teaching practice as identified in Teach First's ITT and ECF curricula are not mutually exclusive. In a real-time lesson, it is not possible to focus solely on a single aspect, such as effective questioning, and not also plan for elements of assessment and feedback. However, the key takeaway for me is to be deliberate about what elements of my lesson I will focus on in an effort to improve my teaching practice, and to realise that developing my expertise is a marathon and not a sprint. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and be equipped with the knowledge of the latest research in pedagogy, be empowered to decide what works, feel valued and trusted by the school community as an expert, and contribute to shaping the future of your profession. Join the conversation using the hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And our final reader contribution for today comes from Jen. Hello, I'm Jen Jenkins, um, RE and Spirituality Officer for Coventry Dyson Board of Education um, and also RE Facilitator for Coventry and Warwickshire, uh, employed by both local authorities. I'm primary trained and an ex-assistant head. I tweet uh, via at Kairos Butterfly, uh, that's K-A-I-R-O-S Butterfly. I love the Impact magazine um, that I received termly from my subscription to the Chartered College of Teaching. I think it's got great relevant articles on educational theory and pedagogy. It's not frequently um, RE focused, but I do read everything as it's very easy to apply what I read over to RE. The latest Impact magazine focused on curriculum, pedagogy and learning. So it was super relevant to pretty much anybody working in education. Um, The article I particularly found useful was um, one by Juan G. Fernandez, who's um, a scientist, um, a scientist, science teacher, and also an educational consultant in Spain. Um, It was focused on science. It was titled, How Memory Works is Actually How Curriculum Should Work. 
And for me, I found this really, really beneficial because I'm working on an, the new agreed syllabus for our local authorities um, that we hope to launch in the next two years. And I've, so I've been thinking about the subject content and the disciplinary knowledge and how to organise all of that so that it really sticks. So he poses a question, how many connections can be made with that idea? So thinking about an idea that's encountered in the curriculum, how many connections can be made with that one idea? So I found that was relevant to RE because in RE we keep returning to concepts often through a spiral curriculum where pupils need to engage with their prior knowledge. So I need to, felt that I needed to really work on what the key big ideas for RE might be that I want pupils to master um, and understand so that they can then connect new ideas to. So I started thinking about the importance of that for an RE agreed syllabus, how I wanted pupils to engage with schema building around those big concepts. And that got me thinking about what would those key ideas be for each individual year group as they study uh, through the agreed syllabus. So what he talks about in the article is about having the need for quality over quantity. So we want to do less, but to go deeper. And he also talks about how the curriculum is not a list, but a network. And he exemplifies that in images of dots and some are larger than others. Um, each curriculum for each year group has these dots and the large dots are the most important. So that's helped me to think through what would be the large dots within our agreed syllabus for each year group, those core concepts that we want pupils to master and understand and from which we can make links to other, um, other aspects of the agreed syllabus. So essentially coming back to that question that he posed, how many connections can be made with that idea? And so... I started thinking about pupil pathways for the new agreed syllabus. So if I'm mapping that relationship between those large dots and those key concepts, how can I show that to pupils so they also know where they're going on their knowledge journey with RE? And that got me thinking about the importance of retrieval practice and how I might build knowledge organisers into our agreed syllabus to sort of support and aid that retrieval practice. And so essentially... What I've been thinking about since reading this article is what are those path, the pathway of ideas for our agreed syllabus within RE itself, but also linking those ideas across into other subjects where we can. And so from that, that article, despite it being about science, I've really started thinking through how our agreed syllabus might be structured. And also I, start, I feel like I'm more confident to get started with planning our agreed syllabus. And I can't wait to get together with a group of teachers from primary and secondary in our local authorities to start mapping those pathways and thinking about how we can really um, create a curriculum that works just as in the same way as memory works as Juan G. Fernandez has set out in his article. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. Join the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. 
that's it for today. Thank you so much to all those who've contributed, either as an article reader or author. Don't forget to look into the Charter College of Teaching if you're not already a member. The next three episodes will be on the Research Ed Guide to Education Myths, Myths I Don't Give Up by Adele Bates, and Culture Rules by Joe Facer. If you've read any of these, then please do share, even if you think I'll already have loads of voices, that often isn't the case, so please do get in touch and take part. As per usual, your ratings and reviews via Apple Podcasts and other platforms are really appreciated, as it helps spread the podcast to other people. Visiting my Buy Me A Coffee page is always gratefully received. That's at buymeacoffee.com forward slash fptppod. And of course, sharing on social media is really helpful. See you next time. Bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>